And so I talked about, on, on, uh, last night, I talked about uh, having a passion for God. I'm going to continue on today. So the text is Hebrews chapter 12. And so if you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, it's verse 1 to 2. But you know what? I feel led to read a little bit before, so sorry. It's not going to be on the screen. But Hebrews chapter 12 Um, let's just read from verse 37. This is, remember, this is talking about the hall of faith. Uh, sorry, it's not going to be up there, but just, I'll, I'll read slowly. Hebrews 12, from 37. And they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. 38, this is the key. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Men of in whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they may should not be made perfect. And then we pick it up now in 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'll read 12 again. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we love you with all of our heart, God. Lord, all of our being, all of our mind, our strength, the very essence of who we are created in your image, God, we want to say we love you, God. Lord, we want to put you first. God, you're not first, second. God, you're our only. God, you're our only hope. And we come as a church, God, to seek your face. Not to seek, God, our own agenda. Not to seek our own fame, God, but to seek your face. So, Lord, would you help us, God, as a church to do that. As we embark on a new year full of new possibilities, new beginnings, God, new hopes, would you lead us, Lord God? Lord, we're just your sheep, Lord. Would you lead us and would you feed us, Lord? Thank you, God. We love you, Lord. Release the revelatory ministry of the Holy Spirit in this room. Lord, give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive what the Spirit is saying to each one of us individually and corporately as a body. Lord, I humble myself today. I ask that you use me to preach a prophetic word with power and authority. Help me, Lord, not just convey your words, God, but convey your heart. We thank you. We love you in this house, God. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. 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 Uh, the writer of Hebrews, and, and a lot of people think that this is, this is Paul, or it could be one of Paul's disciples. Uh, there's, there's, there's clearly evidence for either of those things. And so Paul kind of lays out this, this whole history of faith. 
And it goes all the way back early in Hebrews as he talks about the fact that the Israelites didn't have any rest. They, they couldn't get into the promised land because they lacked faith. And so he begins to describe what faith is uh, to, to the people all around in this early church. And then he gives examples of this faith. Men and women, in, in the, the phrase that he says, who, who's, they were just not worthy of this world. They were just different. It reminds us of yesterday when I talked about Caleb. Right? He had a different spirit. There's something different about him. The Holy Spirit was working in him, and he was just different than other people. And in that, and in that same way, these guys were different. There was something about them. And they had a hope, and really that hope is, is, is kind of manifest in us and we that come to believe. And so the, the writer of Hebrews c- concludes this thought, and he says, Therefore, in other words, in conclusion... He says, we have a great cloud of witnesses. In other words, we have uh, 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 brothers and sisters that have gone before us. They have showed us the way. They, they've endured. They've gone through all sorts of things. And they still at the end found themselves to be faithful before God. And he says, and we, so we have a, a great cloud of witnesses and they surround us. And so I want, you to, I want to tell you right from the beginning that as a believer in Christ, you are never alone. As a follower of Jesus, you are never alone. Not only is the Son with you, the Spirit inside of you, the Father watching over you, but you also are part of this body of Christ. We are never alone, and we always have a cloud of witnesses that surround us. They're, they're cheering us on. I mean, there, there are so many times where, where I'm, I'm home and, and you know I'm I'm reading or I'm I'm doing something and I and I think about my mom you know and I just think about her legacy and and it's just it's just so inspiring I could hear her cheering me on you know I I had a I had a long talk with a, a brother uh, in Korea uh, the day we left um, on on uh, Friday and uh, uh, we we're talking about Juanita you know and and you know in the course of our lunch and our discussion. I could hear her cheering us on. I could hear her just actually still praying for us. You know, I mean, if, if Jesus is living to make intercession for us forever, I'm sure that the saints in heaven are also interceding on our behalf as well. And, and, and if we just stop to listen to the cloud, you're never alone. The patriarchs, the ones that have gone before us in the Bible, through church history, they've gone through every single thing that you can ever imagine going through. And they trust in God. And they found themselves to be faithful before the Lord. They're giving us an example. And so we have this great cloud of witnesses that surround us. And so he, he tells us very clearly, so let's lay, aside, let's lay aside the sin and every encumbrance that entangles us. And, and so, so, I mean, this message can, can kind of probably be titled, I know it says, Passion for God, Part 2. Some of you guys know me by now. I'm horrible at sermon titles, okay? So I just make it really simple, like Philippians 1, 2. <laughs> Philippians 1. 3a right it's just it's simple like this uh, but it could probably better better title as the enemies of passion you gotta understand the enemy is working we do not wrestle against flesh and blood we 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 have to recognize that that there are forces that are coming against me and you wanting to live a passionate life for god 
And, 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 and Paul says it in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. He says, so that no advantage will be taken of us by saying, he was actually talking about forgiving people. And he says, you got to just forgive people because if you don't, the enemy is, is going to just bash you. And so he says, you should forgive so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan. And look what he says, so, so powerful. He says, we are not ignorant of his schemes. The devil has schemes, strategies. He's got a game plan. And he's got an individual game plan for every single one of us. He knows how we tick. He knows what makes us move. He knows what things he can entice us with and what things can entice someone else with. You know, for, for me, there are certain things that, that I'm just... I just don't have the proclivity to, to, to come under these things, but there's other things that I do. And so the enemy knows us so well. Remember he says in James, he says, the demons know and they shudder. They know. I mean, they have, they have better theology than we do. They understand God better than we do. And so there's this, there's this idea, he says, we are not ignorant of his schemes. He's got strategies and he's got ideas. And, and he has developed strategies to counter a passion for God in each one of us. And so the writer of Hebrews says, so one of those things is sin. I mean, it's just it's so blatant. It's just simply sin. Sin is one of those strategies that just takes us out of this place of really pursuing God with all of our hearts. Because what ends up happening for many of us, is, is, is we, we somehow lose that connection, that cause and effect relationship of what sin does in our relationship with God. We become lost. The scriptures tell us, for the wages of sin is death. And when we sin, we introduce death into our lives. And so we need to be very, very aware of, 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 of how this works. He's so deceptive. And, and like I said, we become so blinded by, by this cause and effect relationship of sin. And so, uh, so we got to be aware of that. It's very clear. And then he says, and there's also encumbrances. An encumbrance is, is, is really anything that slows us down or impedes our progress. I say, a lot of people think that, that Paul uh, was either the writer or heavily influenced this writing because Paul uses a lot of sports analogies. And so he talks about boxing. He talks about running a marathon. And in this race, he's talking about a race. And he says, and, and if any of you guys have ever run or exercised you know, regularly, you know this. Like, like I, there was a period of time where I used to run a lot. And, and I stopped because my knees started hurting. Um, uh, but when I did that, I made sure that I carried nothing with me. I, di- I didn't have a whole bunch of change in one pocket, you know, and, and then a bunch of trinkets in my other pocket, you know, and then my wallet in my back pocket. You know, I, I mean, I didn't want to hold on to anything. And so all, all I carried was my mobile phone uh, and my watch, right, just in case of emergency and so I could, I could see how fast I was going. But that was, that was it. And I made sure that, that, that whatever I was wearing or something, at first I used to wear this armband, you know, put my phone in there, and so, you know, let's make it nice and tight, because I don't want any encumbrance, because I want to run the race. I'm not, I'm not trying to haul goods from point A to point B. I'm trying to run a race. I'm trying to get fit and, and run fast and all of these things. And so we, we understand from the Hebrew, or the writer of Hebrews, clearly sin and an encumbrance are two different things. 
Or why would, he, why would he mention it in this way? So we understand sin. This is bad for us. This is anything that misses the mark. You know, this is the Ten Commandments and, and so on and so forth and all these things. But then there's this whole idea of an encumbrance. Anything that impedes your progress. And the writer tells us they tangle us up. They tangle. It entangles us. And so we got to understand that, that and, and, and this is kind of, like I shared last night, sometimes it gets a little tricky. Sometimes it gets a little tough. Because sometimes, in, because sin, which we know is just bad, but an encumbrance is not necessarily bad. It's not. It's not necessarily bad. In fact, many times this encumbrance is, could be a good thing. Have you ever heard this phrase? The greatest enemy of God's best is not what's bad, but what's good. The greatest enemy of God's best is not the bad thing. We know that's just bad. We know that. But sometimes the greatest enemy of God's best is what's good. Sometimes we settle for what's good when God wants his best. And that's where we need discernment because it looks good. It seems okay. Remember yesterday I talked about, you know, that we have to sometimes fight through common sense, you know, and things that seem prudent in this way. And so the so enemy knows this. So he, he, he goes in and, you know, there's sin and there's encumbrances and they, they, they get in the way of these things. We need to be aware that sin is crouching in our door. But we also need to be aware that there are some things that are maybe even good but not the best for us. You know, I, I, I mean, I love sport. I, I, just, I love sport. I love all kinds of sports. Watching it, playing it, yeah, it's a good thing. But you know what? When it takes over my life, it's not a good thing anymore. It becomes an encumbrance. It's a good thing that takes me away from God's best. There's a lot of things like that. Work can be an encumbrance. It's a good thing. We are created to work. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm not saying there's anything negative, but at the same time, we need to be aware when, when work takes prominence in our lives, the good thing all of a sudden becomes the enemy of God's best thing. Children are the same way. Children are obviously very, very good things. I mean, they're, they're, they're the, the gift of God. They're the very best that God gives to us. But when our children takes prominence over our lives, when our whole being and everything about what we do is centered around our kids, that's a little unhealthy. That's a little, it's unhealthy for you, it's unhealthy for the child as well. And all of a sudden, it becomes an encumbrance, a very good thing, but it's taken out of order. And it replaces God in His preeminence. And as soon as that happens, we come out of order. And all of a sudden, it becomes an encumbrance that impedes our progress of running hard after God. It's, it's something. It's something that we need to think through. It's something that we need to pray about. It's something that we need to seek God for. Because the enemy is active. He's, he's looking. He's, he's, a, he's a lion seeking to devour and he's, he, I mean, he's just ready to pounce on us in that way. Let me give you the scripture. 
1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Other translations say all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permissible, but not all things build you up. And so we can recognize there's good things, right? There's permissible things. There's things that seem normal and regular in these things. And, and, when, and when, we, when those things replace God in, in our order, where God is number one, He's the only one, and when that takes preeminence, then something goes out of whack. And we find ourselves getting lost in this place. So, I'm going to give you a, a few minutes to... To meditate on this, are there any encumbrances in your life today? As we look into 2023, are there any encumbrances that maybe you know that you're dealing with right now? And just just close your eyes. I'll give you a moment to do that. And just think through and just ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, kind of a, a Psalm 139 prayer. Search me and try me, O God. And see if there's any hurtful thing within me. And lead me in the everlasting way. And just talk to the Lord. Lord, is there any encumbrance? Is there any good thing that has taken your place of the top position in my life? And if the Lord shows you something, just pray. Just repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I'm just remove that. That doesn't take preeminence in my heart. All right, I'll give you a minute. Go ahead. Just talk to Jesus. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run the race. uh, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You can open your eyes. Again, the enemy has devised strategies to counter passion for God. Um, I, I just wrote down three. I mean... I had like 10, okay, and stuff. And so, um, but uh, tomorrow morning we're starting our fast. And so, so I, I'm just, just three. And um, I, I think they're important, especially in, in light of all that's going on around us in the world. So number one, number one, what are these strategies? Number one, it's the New Age movement. The New Age movement. 
the uh, occult and, and, and all these different things. And I'll, I'll tell you why it's so deceptive in this way. The real strategy of the New Age movement is it seduces people with evil power. It's just the reality. It's, it's, it's fake. It's, it's not God. It's a, it's a counterfeit. We recognize only God creates. What the enemy does is counterfeits. And so when, when people say, uh, they said, oh, I, I, don't, I don't believe in you know, prophetic ministry, you know, hearing from God and those things, you know, because of fortune tellers. And, and you know, because there's a, there's a, 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 a pseudo a kind of a, a evil power. And I say, dude, that is the exact evidence for the supernatural things. Because only God can create. The enemy only counterfeits. And so if you have fortune tellers, which is the fake counterfeit, then you have to have the real thing, which is the prophetic movement. And so we see how this goes. But see, this is the real strategy in it. And because we're, we're not talking about a strategy for the world. I mean, the, the strategy for the world, the enemy has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers, okay? So I'm talking about what are the strategies for believers, it's this New Age movement, and this is how it manifests. The part of the New Age movement is it not only it seduces people with evil power, but you know what the real danger in the church? It makes Christians afraid of power. What happens is Christians, they just think, well, I'm not going to dwell into this Holy Spirit stuff. I'm not going to dwell into this, this spiritual stuff because I might get deceived. You know, if, if I start doing that, I might get a demon or, or something like that. And, and, and that's the real danger. And it seduces people with evil power, but it also makes Christians afraid of power. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is all about power. If you haven't figured out yet, the gospel is the power of God. It's the dunamis. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And that, that's, 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 that's the, 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 the gospel. It's, it's the Christian life. He's endued us with this power in our lives. The gospel is the power of God. Now, the, the average Christian becomes timid about power like I said, because if they believe that, they, they believe that if they get into the realm of the Spirit, they'll be deceived and seduced by evil power. It, it, it happens in this way. And all of a sudden, the people of God are cut off from this dynamism that's the present-day ministry of the Holy Spirit. So anything that is spiritual is looked upon with great discomfort and great suspicion. Right? Anything that seems spiritual, that, that roams, roams into this realm of, of supernatural or whatever you want to call it, spiritual, is looked upon with great discomfort and suspicion. Here's one of my favorite quotes. This is a, a, a Tilhar Chardin. He says this. He says, we're not human beings having a temporary spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a temporary human experience. We are spiritual beings every single one of us. And as spiritual beings, we long for spiritual expression, spiritual gifts, prophetic ministry, healing, hearing God's voice. All of a sudden, all these things are looked upon as suspect. We become, Christians become so afraid of being deceived. 
I remember John Arnott, uh, uh, the pastor of, of, of Vineyard Church, he used to say this, and he says, let's have more faith in God's ability to bless than in Satan's ability to deceive. And when he said that, it just made sense to me. Yeah, let's have more faith in God's ability to bless than in Satan's ability to deceive. And because of the New Age movement, it just people just get very turned off by any demonstration of power. They just think, well, I don't know, is, is that from God? Is that from the enemy? And there's just become so much confusion, they, they cut themselves off from, from something that, I mean, it's not only so biblical, but it's something that, that will bring such blessing into their life. I remember um, uh, years ago, uh, we, we, uh, I was, I was uh, driving uh, in my car with, with uh, uh, one of my family members, and we had just dropped off my mom at the airport, and she had gone back to Uzbekistan, so we're driving back home. And so, uh, you know, uh, they were driving in the front, and I was sitting in the back seat, and I, I was just, uh, maybe two weeks before that, uh, I went to this meeting, and, and I, got, I just got radically healed. Uh, I, I may have shared this story before. I, 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 was, uh, I was camping, and uh, I, I forgot to take my shoes with me. And so, so I, I went camp- I, all I had was my flip-flops. I know, I was young. And so all I had was my flip-flops. And so I just basically went through Yosemite for a week barefoot the whole time. And so my foot, feet got really j- messed up, like really dry. And so, um, and I have really kind of dry skin. And, and, uh, and so my, my heels... Uh, started getting really dry, and then they cracked. So you guys ever had the cracked skin uh, when it's cold or something? Like, I don't know if you can see my finger. My, my finger cracked. You know, this is just from the snow in, uh, um, in, in Korea. And so I had two huge uh, cuts in my heel because the skin cracked. And so every time you walk, the skin kind of comes together, and it's, it, like, it's painful. And so I walked into this church meeting, you know, just very gently, uh, and I remember sitting down, and then the, the pastor of the church, this, this is at, at the vineyard, the pastor of the church afterwards, after the sermon, uh, he was just sharing words of knowledge in these things, and, and, he, and he was there, he says, oh, there's someone sitting over here, uh, and, and, you, and there's some, you, you have two cracks in your heel. And I was like, that guy, he's got to be talking about me. And so, and I, I kid you not, and he says, God's going to heal you. And he just prayed. He didn't just super, he says, Lord, touch him. That's all he said. And I just felt this burning sensation in my heel. And I looked, and I mean, my skin was still cracked, but the pain was absolutely gone. And so you can imagine, I was excited. So I'm in my car, or, you know, my, my family member's car, and we're driving back home, and I'm telling them, you know, they're also Christians, and I said, oh, my goodness, man, God healed me. You know, this, this happened, da, da, da. and then I, I mentioned a few other times where, you know, uh, I'd gotten healed or I prayed for someone who got healed, and, I mean, I was just on fire, right? I was just telling all these guys, and then my family member began to tell me, no, that's not true. God doesn't heal anymore. Like, it, that, that, that's, you know, like... And, and we're going back and forth, and I was like, no, no, I'm telling you, I got healed. So, no, 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 no. You know, that's at the end of the apostolic age. God doesn't heal anymore. You know, uh, God, uh, they needed miracles back then uh, because uh, we didn't have the Bible. Now that we have the Bible, we don't need this authenticating signs, you know, of his authority. And, 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 we, and I started getting upset. 
And I looked, I said, hey, man, are you calling me a liar? I mean, I, I'm honestly, are you calling me? I'm telling you, I got healed, right? Like, this is not a figment of my imagination. And I, and, and I, and I prayed for you, and they got healed too. And they just, just couldn't. They, they, just, they just could not wrap their brains around this whatsoever because they were, they, they were afraid to be deceived by evil power. And so they would just, just throw all that stuff out just for the fact that they won't be deceived in that way. That's the real danger in the church of the New Age movement. It made regular Christians, normal everyday Christians, suspicious and afraid of power. Like I said, the kingdom of God was built on the power of God. He tells the disciples, hey, you wait until power comes from on high. It's, it's, it's all these, you know, Paul preaches and he says, I did not come with you with, with wise words, persuasive words, but of power. Right? And so this is what all it's about. And so we see the strategy of the enemy and it dulls us to eliminate this whole aspect of Christianity. And you know what? Honestly, the enemy has done a pretty good job with that. Number one, new age movement. Number two, self-psychology, or we call pop psychology. Now, this is the real strategy of this. Uh, and now, okay, I believe in psychology, okay? So that's, that's not what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about this kind of nouveau, you know, uh, this, this uh, uh, I'll explain it. The real strategy of this pop psychology in these things is you know what it does? It replaces biblical terms like pride, sin, lust, love of prominence, and we replace these biblical words with terms like insecurity, low self-esteem, good self-image. And all of a sudden, all those things, like we no longer use biblical language anymore, and we don't confront lust. We, we, don't, we don't confront pride we just say, oh, he just has a poor self-image. And it just gets excused. And see, the, the problem with that is as a result, you know what happens? No one takes ownership anymore. We become a society of victims. We just say, no, no, it's not my fault anymore. The reason, the reason why I'm such a nasty person is because my mom only breastfed me for two months. And so I did, not, I did not enjoy the comfort of, of my mother's bosom and that maternal care. And so it's, it's not only my mom's fault, but it's society's fault because she, had to, she lives in this society where she needs to go back to work. You know? And so because I, I miss this in my life, this is why I am the way that I am. And all of a sudden, see, when that happens, all of a sudden, it's no longer your responsibility. It's someone else's fault. Now, I'm just a victim of this or a victim of that instead of saying, yeah, no, I'm a jerk. I did something wrong. I'm sorry to you. I'm sorry to God. Would you please forgive me? We no longer use that language anymore. And it's shrouded in this pop psychology, low self-esteem, poor self-image. You know, all, all these different things, you know, that have, oh, I, I've, I've got an anger issue. Or I got this, man, just repent. I mean, that, that's the freedom that you can have is through repentance. But as soon as it's the deflection and also, no, it's someone else's fault. 
You know, I, you know this, this, this happened when I was six years old. And, and so, I'm, I mean, okay, I'm not making light of that, okay? Stuff happens. But as far as I see the Bible, it doesn't tell us to dwell on those things. It tells us to overcome those things. Romans chapter 8, we are more than conquerors. And we create a society where people just become victims. And then we start using language that, that continues to exacerbate this kind of idea. I, I, I mentioned before, I, I was, when I was in the hospital, I was watching a lot of YouTube clips. And, and, and when I was watching this YouTube, I saw this, uh, I forget if it was Stanford University or it was a very prominent university law professor speaking in, in the Senate and in, in Congress. And, and, and they were talking about different things. And the, the senator was just asking very simple questions. You know, and, and, and this woman, uh, she just comes up and she just basically said, uh, I just want to take a, a task uh, right now that, Senator, that you, you are doing violence, you know, to the transgender community, blah, blah, blah. Even though he wasn't even talking about that. But her response was, you are creating violence. And, and the senator was like, he was dumbfounded. And he says, uh, just ask the question, will you teach at school, right? And I'm, a, I'm sure your students ask questions at school. She says, yes. So, so when your students ask you a question, do you consider that to be violence? You know, and then she kind of squirted the issue, and then she says, why don't you come to my class? You'll learn something. You know, I mean, very arrogant, right? But, 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 we, but we, we have all this language now that exacerbates the, this simple idea. And it was this pop psychology that really came to, listen, I believe in real psychology, okay? And I believe in real psychologists and, and all these things, but this pseudo-psychology that, that, that is just sprouting up around us, it's, 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 it creates a victim mentality where people no longer take responsibility for their actions. It's not my fault. It's because X, Y, and Z happen. I'm a victim of this. I'm a victim of that. And it's dangerous. Because, again, the path to freedom is repentance. And the moment that you don't take any responsibility is the moment you don't, that you can't repent in this way. Uh, freedom is in repentance, but we're too busy being the victim and blaming others to step into that freedom that is made available to us through the cross. Here's the scripture, Acts 3.19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What that person needs is the times of refreshing that come from the presence of God. The way that happens is through repentance and returning. But the moment you start pointing fingers at others, and remember, this is really the original sin. This is Adam and Eve in the garden. And what do they do? They deflect it. Right? They didn't take responsibility for their actions. Right? They said, oh, no, it's, it's the woman you gave me. Right? And then the woman said, no, it's that serpent. And so everyone's deflecting. No one is taking responsibility. Everyone is a victim of something else. That's the danger. That's the demonic strategy of pop psychology that has come up. And the last one, I'm going to spend a little time on this one. This is important. This last one compartmentalization, or I'll give you the theological terminology, polytheism, polytheism, right? Now, 
I, I, know, I know we're theists, okay, and, and we, you know, we're monotheists, but I want to I make a, a, a kind of a, an intellectual conclusion in a little bit that if, we're, if, that if we spend a lot of time compartmentalizing our lives, in other words, this is my work life, this is my church life, my religious life, this is my home life, and, and this is my leisure life, and we compartmentalize our faith in that way, I want to suggest to you, you're not a monotheist. You're a polytheist. I want to suggest to you that you may believe in multiple gods and not the one, the God of Israel. I know that sounds crazy. Yeah, that was a pretty crazy statement. Okay? And so I, I say it half-jokingly, but at the same time, I, I, just, I, just, I just sort of throw it out there in that way. And so let me, let me try to explain. Let me, let me build my case, okay, uh, for this way. Uh, the text is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, what's known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, let me give you the context. People living uh, during the writing of Deuteronomy, uh, during this time, um, they're living in the ancient Near East, they were deeply, deeply spiritual people. They believed the world was filled with the sacred, the mystical, and the magical. They were polytheists. In other words, they believed in many, many gods. By the way, there are only three religions on this earth that we consider monotheists or just one god. That's Judaism, that's Christianity, and that's Islam. Right? These are monotheists. And, and they believed that there were numerous gods, there were demons, there were angels, uh, and they were, they were seen as ruling over different spheres of life. And, and so th this, this is what life was. Life was very spiritual, but it was ruled by so many different deities, and, and most of these deities were not very pleasant. Primarily, it was really more of a fear-based thing. And so, for example, a... a a, a, pro, a practicing polytheist living in this time, a simple task. If they wanted to go and draw water at the river, it was a very perilous, perilous spiritual journey. Because there are a few things that need to happen. They would have to go by the forest, and the forest was governed by a particular deity. And in that forest, there was one big tree. And this tree looked really evil. And this tree was governed by another deity uh, that was there. And there was all kinds of dangers happening as, as they would try to just simply draw water from the river. And so they had to appease the god of the field that they walked by, offer an offering. They had to appease the god of the tree that they went through. They had to appease the god of the river and so that the river water would not be contaminated. I know it sounds very, very suspicious, uh, 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 super, super, superstitious, right? But that's kind of, uh, of where they were at. And they needed to offer sacrifices and, and perform religious rituals at each of these shrines in the field, in the tree, in the river. And, and, and all these things needed to take place. And, and, and you know, the river goddess, the, 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 the tree goddess. And like I said, a lot of times these, these spirits were nasty. And so, so they finally, let's say they, they go through all these things. They finally get to the river. Now they need to appease the river goddess. And this particular river goddess was very fickle, very, very fickle. 
And if you mess with them in the wrong way, then they could cause drought or floods or other catastrophes. And they equated all these things to these spirits. And so the, this polytheistic view of life went beyond fields and rivers. It extended to the state, which is politics. It extended to family, to war, to fertility, everything. The life of a polytheist was, you look on the screen, was number one, it was complex. Each deity has to be encountered with a proper decorum. It was superstitious. Minor actions have massive spiritual consequences. And it was dangerous because not all gods were good. In fact, many were just evil. This is their life. Complex, superstitious, and dangerous. And in the context of this kind of life that they were living comes the passage from Deuteronomy. The covenant-making God makes a promise with his covenant people. And he just simply asks one thing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with your whole being. That's what he asks. No longer, no longer could there be different gods for different spheres of life. The God of the temple, another God of politics, a different God for fertility, uh, a different God for the field or at work, another for the river, another for agriculture. All those things came together in one. In Yahweh, in God, there is one God who rules over every aspect of our life. Turn to your neighbor. Say, hey, good looking. Just say, Yahweh rules over every aspect of our life. Go ahead. This is important. Now, Yahweh, the Lord, is Lord over the home. Lord over the field, Lord over politics, Lord over our work, Lord over our money. He is Lord over everything. The religious task was to honor this one God through all aspects of our life. Let me give you the New Testament. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. For from him and through him and to him are not just some things, not just on Sunday, not just religious matters, but to him are all things. That's what it meant to be a follower of God. Polytheists can very easily compartmentalize their lives. They can distribute it amongst many different powers at work. Monotheists, that's who we are as Christians, we only have one reference point for our life and our existence, and that's God. That's God. When we compartmentalize our life, not only does it create inconsistency, Right? But it, it, it opens a door right, to 
conceivably, polytheism, where we begin to, I mean, this is a huge stretch, okay? So, I mean, this is way out there, but it, could, it, it can sometimes go in that way. I shared this conversation. I remember years ago, I was having this conversation with Os Guinness. And, and I was just talking to him, and I said, hey, what do you think is the greatest threat to the church right now? And the greatest obstacle? And without batting an eye, he just looked at me and says, the greatest obstacle to the church today is the compartmentalization of our faith. We are just no longer consistent. We have just, just set aside, this is religious life. This is my Sunday life. It has nothing to do with what happens at work on Monday. And no wonder the church is so unattractive to a dying world. Because we worship God on Sunday, but then we worship money on Monday. And then we worship leisure on Saturday. You know, and we worship, you know, NFL on, I, I'm, I don't know. I don't know what you guys worship. I'm probably speaking to the wrong crowd, right? Maybe it's EPL or something here. But, it, but it's something, the compartmentalization of our faith. See, Jesus is not just your God when you're at church. He's also the God of your home. He's the God of your work. He's the God when you're on your date. So keep your hands to yourself. He's the God of your leisure. He's the God when you're at the market. He's your God when you're in the taxi. He's your God when you're on vacation. He is your God all the time. We can't compartmentalize in that way. And if we do, we're making the same mistake that polytheists made. It doesn't work that way. It's got to be, there's a consistency because he is one. I remember having this conversation with Pastor Selamat. And uh, when we started uh, um, uh, Spin years ago, first it was called Febe. And, uh, uh, you know, from, from the uh, um, New Testament uh, woman Phoebe. And so that was, that was the beginning of it. And, and, we, and when we talked through and, you know, we're starting this ministry, just, just my, my thought was just simply this. My thought was that, that as peers, uh, that, that what we would do is we would hire Indonesian helpers and domestic workers, and we would hire them. And, and, they, and they would come, and, and, you know, and we would bring them to church with us, you know, or, or we'd bring them to, you know, to Phoebe, and, and Pastor Selmat would disciple them. And then you know, we would pray together at home, and you know, I mean, it would be like one happy family and all these things. And, then, and so that, that was the idea, right? That, that, you know, and then we would give them time to go and do ministry and, and do evangelism and all these things. You know, we wouldn't be you know, these, these crazy you know, uh, uh, bosses that, that just demand all their time, but we'd give them time to go and minister and, and share the gospel gospel and these kind of things. That, that was the plan. And so I remember, you know, about maybe two years in, in this thing, and I could see Pastor Solomon getting quite frustrated. And, and because part of the plan was, he says, uh, people won't hire uh, the uh, Phoebe members. And, and we talked some more, why? It's because if they hire the Phoebe members, then they have to be Christian at home too. Ooh. Ouch. Ouch. I know, I know, right? It's like they can't just, you know, raise their hands on Sunday and then yell viciously if they put a little too much salt in the soup on Tuesday. You, know, you, you, you understand what I'm saying, right? And Pastor Solomon, because he's a smart man, he, he recognized that was the challenge. That was the challenge. 
It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. I remember talking to this black pastor years ago, a very renowned black pastor in America. And he was saying that it was very difficult to have small groups, uh, like house churches. It really wasn't flying in the African church. And I, I, was, I was just curious, why, why is the case? And he basically said the same thing. Is, and and I'm, this is not a caricature. This is, just, this is what he said, okay? So don't, you know, don't blame me or anything. He just says a lot of, lot of you know, people from his race, they come to church and they, bring, they wear their best on Sunday. And it's, and, but they, they don't want to make an expression of their faith Monday to Friday. They just want the, just the lives just to be separate in this way. And, but he was working to change that idea. Obviously, not every African-American church is like that. Okay, so, don't, so don't misquote me, okay? You know, I'm just, just laying out the, the, you know, the case that he shared. See, he's the God everywhere. Everywhere. That's what it means to be a monotheist. That, that, that was the covenant call. That, that happened here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You know what the church has primarily done with that statement? And I want to read these notes carefully because rather than it be a call to covenant loyalty, it became a simple theological statement. This is what we call ontology. This is, a, it's up there. It's a philosophical concern with the nature of being or the ontos. It was influenced by Hellenistic and Platonic thinking. Ontological theology focuses on God and his eternal being rather than his existential claim on our lives. In other words, when we say the Lord is one, we mostly make a claim of his being instead of his place in our lives as first of all. I remember the first time I heard that word. I was dealing, I was dealing with a woman. I was very young. It was my first year in seminary. I was very young. And I was dealing with this woman in my church, and she was heavily, heavily demonized. I mean, just, it, it, I mean, it was just crazy stuff that was going on with this woman. And so, and, and I, you know, I, I didn't really have much knowledge of these things. And so I remember my first year in seminary, I called, and he was supposed to be the preeminent professor dealing with kind of supernatural phenomena. He was a professor in the School of Psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary. And I desperately called him on the phone, you know, to, to, to just basically get an idea of like, how, how do we do this? You know, like, she's, this is crazy. I'm, I'm literally spending four or five hours a night, myself and my pastor, ministering to this, to this young woman. And, and, and we're just not getting anywhere. We're just exhausted, right? And, and so, I, so I call up this professor and I say, help, you know, what can I do? And goes on and on. And so he, he, he you know, he shares a little advice here and there. And then he and it says, well, you know, can you help out or something? And this is what he told me. He goes, I'm an ontological believer, I was like, what the heck is that? Basically, it's just a philosophy of understanding being, but he actually doesn't do the stuff. And I never called him back again. You know what I did? I called the school of rural missions, right? The guys that actually practice it, the guys that actually do it. And I got a hold of a, a man named Dr. Kraft, Charles Kraft. And I asked him, and, and he, he helped tremendously. See, there's a danger, I mean, this is another side, there's a danger 
when God just becomes an intellectual exercise in our lives. That's what happens when we compartmentalize. That's, 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 that's where all this inconsistency begins to come in in this place. I'll say this again. In other words, when we say the Lord is one, we mostly make a claim of his being instead of his place in our lives first of all. When that passage says the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's not just his, his, his claim of his, of his being. It means he's first. And one meaning everything. Whole. Perfect in this way. And so this is our call. We cannot compartmentalize. We cannot come to this place. God is one. Our task, our task as Christians is to bring all aspects of our life, communal, individual, under this one God. Here, O Solomon's porch, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. He is first and he is only in this way. Now, let me, let me make it clarified a little bit more, okay? The Old Testament, particularly the Torah, was written in this context. Especially when you read the book of Leviticus. For Leviticus, for honest, I was always afraid of Leviticus. There's two books, and still to this day, that make, my, make me quiver. It's Leviticus, or I should say it was Leviticus, and the book of Revelation. Right now, I'm good with Leviticus, but Revelation scares me to death, okay? So, but that, that's a whole other thing. When we, when, we, when we look at this, especially Leviticus, the Pentateuch seems, when you read this, it seems to jump from subject to subject. It goes from deep theology in one verse to sometimes a very trivial matter in the next verse altogether, one verse deals with what we do in the temple, how we worship, all these things. And then the next verse, you know, deals with what happens when your donkey falls into a pit. And then the next verse deals with what you do when you have mildew in your pots and pans in the kitchen. And, and you know, and then the next verse deals with the woman's menstrual cycle. It's like, what the heck is going on? Like, what is happening here? Did these guys lose their mind? Or did one guy write went to have lunch, forgot what he wrote, he just wrote something else right afterwards, and then had dinner, and then wrote something else right afterwards. There's like no connection, but that's the connection. That's the deep, deep connection, and you have to see this. There doesn't seem to be any order or logic that's there, but this is the logic. The logic is the writers did it this way because it trained the Hebrew mind to relate all aspects of life to God. He's not just the God on Sunday or, you know, on the Shabbat when you go in the temple and you, gotta, you better worship him this way. Very clear, he's also the God when you're washing your pots with mildew, when you're experiencing a, a menstrual cycle, right? Ladies, of course, right? You know, when you're, going through, when you're going through these things, you know, when your animal falls into a pit. It's just crazy. It's, it's just training the mind in this way to relate every aspect of life 
back to God. It was purposeful. And when you start seeing the Old Testament in that way, it comes to life. I remember early on, I used to get freaked out about the jealousy of God. How can God be jealous? We see jealousy is so bad. In this context, jealousy makes perfect sense. Because it's, it's, it's not an evil jealousy. It's because everything belongs to him. That the jealousy flows from that place. There's no contradiction in that way whatsoever. But if you don't understand the context, then it becomes very difficult to understand this. From mildew to the worship in the temple and everything in between. He is Lord of all. He is one. So Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch. And I, I, a lot of these ideas came from these guys. And this, this is what he said. He said, while in the Western spiritual tradition, we have tended to see the religious as one category of life. Among many, we even call nuns and monks the religious. The Hebrew mind was no such distinction about a purely religious existence, but is concerned with all of life. All of life is sacred when it is placed in relationship to the living God. Isn't that great? All of life is sacred when placed in relationship with this living God. And so let's not fall into this trap of compartmentalization. Let's just not have the God on, that we worship on Sunday, and then we worship a different God on Monday at work, and then we worship the fertility God, you know, when we're trying to get pregnant, you know, and then we, you know, worship this, you know, when we're trying to make investments, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's crazy. We, we be, basically become polytheists in the world around us, but that's not who we are. Let me just conclude. This is my prayer. Ephesians chapter 1. 20 to 23, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of his strength of his mind, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only on this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is our prayer that we would be this church of the Lord Jesus Christ that has fulfills all these things in the Lord as he is the head of all. That the eyes of our heart may be enlightened. Pastor Nate, why don't you come up? You will know what is the hope of his calling or the riches of his glory in his inheritance in the saints and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. This is what God wants for every single one of us. Jesus is Lord of our life. So, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Is there any area of your life where He is not Lord? Close your eyes. We talked about encumbrances. Here's another one. Is there any area of your life where He is not Lord?
Maybe it's with your dating life. You have a hard time trusting him there. And so you're trying to do it on your own. Maybe it comes with your work. Or maybe it's the way that you raise your kids. Is there anything where he is not Lord? Brothers and sisters, on the first Sunday of 2023, let us run hard after God. Let's run this race with endurance. And let's fix our eyes on Jesus. We can't do it. We can't. In our own strength, we can't. But by His grace, we can. It's about surrendering. It's about letting go. It's about giving God space to work. All that He asks is we fix our eyes on Him. That's all you have to do. And everything flows from that space. So as Pastor Nate and team lead us in a song, I just want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. He's our example. He's the author and finisher, perfecter of our faith.
We'll continue to worship, but let's go to the scriptures and let's prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. If you have not received the elements, so raise your hand and one of our ushers will make sure you get one. Let me read and we'll pray and we'll meditate and then we'll take it together as a body. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus in the night in which, in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner should be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, who does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. And so the Lord tells us to come to his table regularly, but he also comes and he says, we come to the table reverently. And so I want to encourage you to examine your hearts before the Lord. As we take in and we remember, that's what it's about, it's remembering what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we humble ourselves before this great act of sacrifice. And we prepare ourselves, get ourselves ready and right to receive the blessing of that sacrifice. So let's close our eyes and the team will lead us. And let's just meditate. Let's just take care of business before the Lord. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to convict us. Let's examine our hearts, our motivations, our attitudes. And then we'll take together as a body.
Father, thank you for sending us your Son. Thank you for the cross. I thank you for the loss. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, we can be free. But the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. You've given through Christ. And so we thank you, Lord. Thank you for his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. It gives us life. And help us to live this life passionately before you. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Solomon's porch. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. He is first and the only. And we shall love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our soul, and all of our strength. Teach us that 2023 be the year where this church runs with endurance, the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Let's take together. This is Christ's body broken for you. This is the blood new covenant poured out for you. Why don't we stand to our feet if you're able to? And let's sing this as we close. Let's sing verse 2. Thank you, God. Thank you for the cross, God. 
Lord, we thank you for this church. Thank you for this body, this family. Lord, our heart and our desire, God, as we kick off this new year of so much hope and possibilities, God, is to be a passionate followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you lead us, God? Lord, we don't want to compartmentalize our life and be all over the place, God. Lord, we want to be focused, Lord. You are one. You're the only God. So would you teach us, Lord? Help us to run the race that is set before us, God. Our race this year, God, is to give you our everything, Lord. Help us. We can't do that in our own strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, God. Help us not to be afraid of his power. Thank you, Lord. Would you watch over this church as we embark tomorrow morning, God, of our fast. Give us strength, God. Give us the anointing, Lord. We thank you. We love you, God. We bless you. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to him. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, shalom, from this day forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.